Greetings! This is episode 30 of Hear Her Sports. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. Today's guest is Sid Schultz, one of the top enduro racers in the country. Enduro is downhill mountain biking plus endurance. It takes me a while to understand the key to being successful in enduro, but Sid does a great job explaining the finer points of the sport. You'll even hear my total aha moment. Sid also stands out for her huge following on social media. She and her husband, Mackie, call Taos, New Mexico home, but really most of the year they travel around the country to races in a tricked out van. Find links to videos about van life on the episode notes page of hearhersports.com. Also find there a link to her excellent blog. In our conversation, we talk about social media and writing in relation to results and sponsorship. Sid and Mackie make a very nice living racing and telling their stories through images, words, and video. Sid is super fun to talk to. Stay tuned to hear about Thailand, competing, training, and riding with others. She even has some personal advice for all of us who do exercise with others and are sometimes the slowest one out there. Number one, don't say you're sorry. She's written on the subject. Find that link on the episode notes page of hearhersports.com. Let's get started. Welcome, Sid. I really appreciate you being here and your patience, and I'm excited to be talking to another Ohioan. Yeah. <laughs> Stuck in ice for the moment, anyway. Yep. I would prefer the cold to what's going on right now, actually. It's like raining and 31 degrees, which is pretty awful. <laughs> and uh, you just got back from Thailand, which must be making this doubly bad. Yeah, yeah. So we calculated that um, when, so when we first got to Thailand, we woke up at like five in the morning with jet lag and like went to the beach and went swimming and then... Um, Two days ago when we got back here, we woke up at 5 a.m. again with jet lag and like went down and walked on the the lake that's all frozen. And I think we calculated that the temperature differential was like 85 degrees (laughs) between those two days. So, yeah, it was a little shock to the system. A little shock to the system, (laughs) yes. And it seems like you did a lot of introspective thinking while on vacation. What happened? Yeah, for sure. That was partially the goal, for sure. I think this was the first time that I had done any sort of trip without a bike for about three years. And that's like, I, I get to travel all over the world with my bike, but it's not really vacation. And I think, you know, I forget that sometimes and forget that I haven't really, you know, when you don't work in an office, like you don't really take vacation very often. So this was the first one in a long time and it was very nice. <laughs> I recommend recommend vacations. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so what did you come up with while you were on vacation? Well, I, quite a few things. I think um, for starters, I, I took some time off being on social media and um, basically just to give some background, like part of the way that I make money and make a living is through sponsorship and through my social media accounts. So it can be very draining. Like I spend a lot of time on the computer, a lot of time staring at my phone and, um, I don't often get a chance to like step back from that entirely. And so when we went to Thailand, basically turned off my phone, put it on airplane mode, deleted the Instagram app entirely because Instagram is so addictive and uh, just didn't do any social media for a little over two weeks, which was really refreshing. Um, I think I realized a lot about how, first of all, I just realized how much I had been using social media. I think it's really um, insidious. It kind of creeps in and fills up all those little spots 
in your day when you could just sort of just be in the moment. And it's hard to do that if you're looking at your phone. That's a big and, deal. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I went to New York uh, several years ago, and one thing that I noticed was that on the subway, because there, it, at the time there was no internet coverage there, people were reading and just sort of staring off, listening to music or looking around, and I suddenly realized that the city was so manageable because everyone had these moments of quiet time. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think definitely, you definitely see that in the airport, like when I was coming back from Thailand, I think taking that time off has made me far, I haven't stopped using social media. It's just made me a lot more aware of when I'm on my phone, um, which I think is sort of the first step. And I do think it will be a challenge to kind of take that experience and maintain that awareness as opposed to just falling back into sort of standard patterns. But I definitely noticed like in the airport, you know, you look around and there'd be 10 people around you and all of them are staring at like an iPad or their phone. It's like, okay, this is maybe a problem societally on a larger scale. Like none of us are, are looking up at all. Right. Do, do you do you have any changes in mind after this? Yeah, I think I definitely, it, it's going to require a lot of balance because um, I do, like I need to use social media for my job. I, I also want to use it because I think it's an incredible platform for meeting other people and sharing your story and interacting. But I think I'm just going to make a big effort to be aware of when I'm using it, like for those positive purposes, as opposed to when I'm just filling up space. And I think that's challenging. I don't want to put like an exact like time cap because I think it's not the amount of time, you know, it's like the intention. Um, And so I think it's definitely challenging. I think I just am probably going to incorporate more breaks from social media throughout my year because I I think I had a lot of fear going into this and it, it sort of sounds ridiculous but I definitely like was afraid that like I would you know not get any likes on my photos if I took two weeks off and that like hasn't been the case at all um but I think yeah. <laughs> that's a little bit of FOMO <laughs> yeah no totally it's definitely FOMO and I think another thing I realized is that like yeah You know, I I can kind of, because I use this for a job, you know, I can kind of tell myself like, oh, like you need to care about engagement and the number of followers you have and all this because like it's your job. But I think it's also like worth realizing that like primarily it's still an ego thing. Like I don't have sponsors that are going to like be like, hey, you only got 400 likes on your last photo. Like we're done. You know, like that's not realistic. Like nobody really cares as much as I do. So I think stepping back from that a little bit and like being a little more realistic has been helpful. And I think you have to step out to get perspective like anything. Right. But one of the things I've been trying to keep track of just internally is when I'm looking at social media as a as a, um, an addiction. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of being aggressive about that that word but you know versus what you were saying is using it for all its good things yeah um it's definitely addictive i think there's no no doubt about that at all i think it i mean it's obviously it's a habitual addiction versus like you know a chemical addiction so i think something i did that has actually been surprisingly helpful is i moved where the instagram um app is on my phone and i made it on like up several pages back but i I find myself opening my phone and my thumb going to the spot where that used to be like (laughs) 
and I don't even know that it's happening. Like it just happens. So now it, it doesn't open anything because there's nothing there anymore. Right. So that that's a, another check. You know, I can be like, oh, do I actually want to get on Instagram now or is that just happening? You know, and I think I'll probably I'm sure it will become automatic and I'll have to like continue moving it around. Um, but I think it's it's helpful. Um, <laughs> to sort of like to, to change up those patterns because I, I doubt I'm the only person who has like a mechanical like you know your thumb just like opens Instagram without you know your permission so if anyone <laughs> else out there is having that issue just like move where the app is and it you know makes your brain be a little bit more aware of what is going on right it's like a second of pause where you have to think okay is this really what I want to do yeah so what else what else did you find out while you were in Thailand um, I definitely like, I think it was actually kind of refreshing in that I didn't do a ton of like super introspective stuff. Like it was definitely like spent a lot of time on the beach. Uh, my husband's family is in Thailand. So that's why primarily why we were there for Christmas and, um, and the new year's with his family. So we got to spend a lot of time with the family, got to kind of like turn off our brains a little bit and not be super goal oriented, which I think is something that I need to work on for sure. Like I spend, you know, 11 months of the year, like trying to get better on the bike and be a better athlete. And I think it's really helpful to be like, okay, here are three weeks where I'm not trying to get better. You know, I'm just trying to like be as a human being and have fun, you know, (laughs) like that, um, that's, that's really helpful. I think. Yeah. Cool. I want to ask you about a whole bunch of stuff, but why don't we start by, just give me an overview of Enduro and what it is that you like about it and what attracted you to focus on Enduro. Yeah, so Enduro is basically um, downhill stages that you race, but you ride your bike between stages so you can be out for um, you know seven hours a day. So it's sort of a mix between an endurance sport and also a um, you know, downhill skill based sport, because most of the timed stages are really like, can be three, three to 15 minutes long. So it's not, um, not super endurance oriented that way. Um, and I think enduro is kind of confusing to explain, honestly, (laughs) but I think for me, the appeal originally when I started racing was that, uh, there's, it's not, you know, a USA cycling, not UCI, sports so there were really like no barriers to entry when I started and I um I had raced some cross country as like cat two but you know enduro I got to basically like be a pro racer and start there and like really push my limits and not have to worry about that bureaucracy and also I think it's it's a lot more fun um just on a general level to like because you have these big days you get to go to like these incredible places um, that you wouldn't with either a downhill or a cross-country race because you know sometimes our race stages are three hours out into the backcountry so you'll ride for three hours out there and then you get to race this incredible descent that you would never see um, in another mountain bike discipline so that it's a pretty incredible sport it's been super fun and I think um I definitely recommend people to try it if they're like not super don't find downhill or cross country appealing because it does kind of I think hit on some of the the funner aspects of mountain biking in general. What I find confusing is the parts that aren't timed and how that sort of fits into the race and 
you know, do you think about that when you're training? Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's definitely, I think, confusing for, <laughs> to explain. Um, in terms of training, I, I come from more of an endurance background. So no, I don't really think about that because I'm usually like, don't have trouble riding my bike for seven hours. I have trouble like going fast for 30 seconds. Um, but that's just sort of where I'm at. Like I definitely have friends who have to train more for the, um, endurance aspect of it than they do for like the downhill skills. Cause maybe they race downhill for 15 years or something first, and then they're transitioning to doing enduro. I think it is confusing because it varies a lot. Like a lot of the races in the U S like there's no time requirements so you really can kind of like putter up the hill as slowly as you want but the international races usually have time cutoffs which can be really intense um especially if you have a mechanical or any sort of issue you can find yourself missing your cutoff which actually happened to me last year in New Zealand and is really a bummer because they give you like a 10 minute um time penalty so there is an element of of endurance required there. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. It sounds like the the transfers are more important than the lack of timing them actually make it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah, you have to make it, but it doesn't matter like how quickly as long as you're within this time frame. Right. And, so you, you have so to last for the eight-hour day or the seven-hour yes, day. Yes, basically, yeah. yeah. And, and I think you have to also be able to go hard on really technical and kind of scary terrain, even when you're super exhausted. So I think that's sort of the enduro. Um, the, the biggest challenge of enduro is just incredible exhaustion by the end of the day, but also still having to do these very difficult trails when you can't ah. do your handlebars anymore. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> even thought about that part. Yeah, that's that's the big thing. Huh, interesting. I read somewhere, and I maybe I'm I'm – misunderstood but it sounds like the uscf is thinking about getting involved is that going to affect you at all um i'm sure they are it's very complicated at the moment i know um enduro world series is um has been there have been rumors about them going uci for a long time and i think if they did then um usa cycling would follow suit and would have to because there'd be no qualification process in the u.s otherwise Right now, there are probably only like two enduro races that are USA Cycling qualified in the U.S. Um, so it would be a mess, probably. <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of qualification, I have a, a pro downhill license at, at this point. I just didn't when I was starting. But I haven't really raced downhill. I basically just got it because I was racing pro enduro and I needed to race Sea Otter. And they weren't going to tell me after racing pro for three years that I couldn't have a license. <laughs> Um, it was a great loophole, really, because <laughs> um, I don't really race downhill at all, but they call whatever right. the bureaucracy is. Um, yeah, yeah. It, I really don't know where the future of Enduro is going internationally and, and with the federations. It really it could be a mess. I suspect they will they will allow qualification from other series if they do go UCI because otherwise it would it would shut out like huge swaths of people but yeah who knows <laughs> do you like competing I do I think um honestly <laughs> that is is probably my biggest challenge I think I uh to put it this way I really love training and I love being an athlete and I love riding my bike and I am learning to love racing I think I I keep racing because it's 
it's a challenge for me, for sure. And I think that's part of the appeal. You know, like I, I think I would train at a pretty high level, even if I didn't race at all. So the, the part that makes it a challenge is like, can I be this good of a rider and also be this good of a racer? Because I think right now, for me, for the past few years, those things have not lined up. Like I am much better on a bike than you would think based on a lot of my race results because I kind of uh, choke or um, have a lot of mishaps in races. So that's sort of like the piece in the puzzle that I'm trying to put together. And um, so I think I love the challenge of competing, but sometimes like in the present while competing, I'm like, this is awful. Yeah. What what do you dislike about competing? I think I I struggle to keep my expectations realistic. I think that's been hard. And so I don't like being disappointed and I don't like feeling like I'm disappointing myself. And um, I think I also, I, I get stressed out and then I don't ride as well. And then I'm upset that I didn't ride as well. So I think that's sort of the pattern. And, you know, that's something I've been working on fixing. I'm hoping this year will go a little bit better, but... Yeah, just that's the honest answer, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a, a sort of a linked question. In the writing, both you and Mackie seem sort of yeah. dismissive about the importance of results. For example, your website, I don't see any list of results. So what are your thoughts about results? And, you know, I know that this is what you're doing for a living. And, it, you know, so how do results fit into the bigger picture of, say, you know, making your living, your lifestyle, your brand, your long-term goals? Yeah, that's a really big question for sure. I think for me, results were very helpful to get over a certain hump. Like when I first started racing, I got some top fives in the U.S. and that was really helpful to sort of get sponsors' attention. And so I think you can sort of, especially with sponsorship, you can look at results as sort of a threshold. Um, But I think like when you really get down to the particulars, I mean – like we're doing a sport that most people don't even know what it is, you know? So I don't want to get too hung up on like my identity being like, you know, as first that much different than fifth in some race that like no one's ever heard of, you know, I think (laughs) (laughs) just, you know, big picture in the world, no results don't matter that much in terms of sponsorship there. I think they matter in thresholds. Like for me, I got into this threshold of being, you know, one of the top female enduro racers in the U S definitely not the top, but like, well known enough that I can get sponsorship. I think the next level is, you know, if you're winning at an international level, certainly results matter. Um, but between those two thresholds, I think there are so many other things that as an athlete, especially, you know, sponsors want you to be sharing your story. And I think there are a few different ways you can do that. If you're winning, you know, every race, especially at an international level, like you're going to have people sort of sharing that story for you. But if you're not, and even if you're winning in the U.S. in Enduro, like nobody's really telling that story. Like you might get a few articles on Pinkbike, but that's like really limited. And, you know, what is the story there? It's like, oh, you're a person who wins races. Um, I personally think it's a lot, you know, that's the value of social media is that you can share your own story and you can share at a deeper, more complex level and you can, you know, be a person like a complete person who rides bikes and like succeeds sometimes and fails sometimes and like all of this on social media and you can share that. And I think that's far more valuable than results. Um, 
I think, you know, there are probably people who would hate that I'm saying that because there are a lot of people who feel like sponsorship should be this direct correlation to how good your results are. And there are like plenty of people out there who like feel that like what I do is effectively being like a social media model or whatever. That's not how I see it. I don't think that's how my followers see it, but that's definitely a contradictory opinion. I think it's also a little short-sighted though, because ultimately sponsors care about selling product and how you do that is is up to you but to think that you know a sponsor in the bike industry has some altruistic you know need to I don't know how to put this exactly but like they don't really care about making bike racing better it would be great if they did you know but they're um you know profit driven companies Sure. You know, and I find it really interesting because I raced, it was a long time ago now, and I was on a team. And so all the sponsors were team directed. And as a rider, I had very little contact with the sponsors. And you and some other cyclists that I've interviewed have this really direct, really interesting relationship with the sponsors, which I find really much more interesting. I mean, both for you and for them. Yeah, I think it's, I think it makes a lot more sense because like also I pick sponsors that I want to work with. So I think there's a level of authenticity there that you don't get, you know, if it's a, a team where everything's doled out and people like, you know, maybe post on the internet, like love these new pedals or whatever, like, <laughs> you know, if you're not picking them, like, what does that even mean? Right. You know? And I think people see through that really easily. And I think, you know, as individual athletes, I think, you have more power in basically being able to craft your story, like pick the sponsors that you want to work with and, and have people believe in that because you believe in it. And I'm sure there's a flip side in terms of money from the industry. I know like teams have way bigger bargaining power and more leverage. And I think there's probably something to be said for that, but yeah, I get there's always pros and cons. <laughs> sure. What do you think makes your story exciting and interesting, both from, you know, your followers standpoint, but also from your sponsorship standpoint? Um, I think I'm more honest than a lot of people are willing to be. Um, I think a lot of racers have a lot of insecurities about needing to perform at a certain level and needing to be a certain way. I think if you look at a lot of athletes online and their social media profiles are like really similar, uh, there's sort of this pattern of like really excited to be racing this weekend. And then there's a like, this is how the race went. And then like, you know, maybe on Tuesday it's like, wish I was racing this weekend. And it's like, it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> seriously, it, especially for like Enduro world series races, I follow like, you know, all the racers and I'm like, Oh, here's like 30 posts in a row that say the same thing. And I think if you can say something different, then that's sort of exciting in its own. I I definitely make an effort to be honest, regardless of the outcome of the race. And, and that can be draining, I think, to a degree. Like, I think it's hard to be vulnerable and honest to an extra, you know, several thousand people. Um, but I, I think that's what makes a good story. Do you find that you know, you're, since your online presence is so big and so strong, do you find that sort of affects how you race? Or like, do you ever think about like, as you're riding, you think, oh, I'm going to post this picture or talk about this and that it affects how you ride? 
Uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> and that's something I really, I really noticed this year and I'm working to fix it. I've noticed that I will like craft my, not, not necessarily like a, a particular post, but like craft my narrative before the race is even over. Mm. And I think that's really, I, I think I've definitely like kind of shot myself in the foot a few times. Like I've definitely had like you know, the, the narrative all crafted and then like something goes totally different and I'm like, Oh, what do I do now? You know, like I, that was not what I was expecting. And, but like, why was I expecting anything? You know, you never really know how a race run is going to go. Um, I think something I tried this year is, is, and that I plan to try in the future is if I catch myself doing that, like try to recraft it to be positive. At least I think that least is a step in the right direction because I think sometimes like if I have you know if I get a flat or like break off my derailleur or something I'll like craft that whole explanation and like what happened in my head and then like what maybe ends up happening is I you know I get it fixed and I go on and it doesn't really make a difference but maybe if I had sort of put that out of my head and focused on instead of focusing on like the narrative, just focus on like what was happening and what was coming at me. I think that would be better. Right. Uh, but I think it's hard. I think it's hard to do that. And I think people do that regardless of how many followers they have online. And even maybe regardless if they're online, I think it's very common to kind of be always, you know, as a human being crafting your narrative, like, how's this story? How am I going to spin this to like, you know, be what I'm about. And, and I think that's, something we should all watch out for. <laughs> right. So again, this is sort of a corollary question. What is your primary goal for riding and for racing? Yeah, I mean, it's actually changed a lot over the past few months. I had a pretty difficult 2017 season. I got pretty sick. I just, I think I just overtrained massively. So um, in September of this year, I put my bike away for like a month, um, took a lot of time. I haven't really... I mean, I've been doing a certain amount of gym work, but I haven't really trained on the bike since September, which is uh, really different than what I've done in past years. I think, though, I have probably gone into every season slightly overtrained for the past three years. So this year I'm trying maybe being slightly undertrained, and we'll see how that goes, and maybe <laughs> one day I'll find a balance for it. I think um, I've, I've been fairly results-oriented with goals over the past year, and I think... I'm sort of shifting from that to being um, more about being a better athlete. I have had a lot of injuries. I can't really run at all at this point because I screwed up my knees really badly. So that's something I'm going to try to tackle this year. I'm still going to be racing and, and doing everything, but I, I want to work on those sort of basic fundamental athleticism that I'm sort of lacking at this moment. And I think the way I've kind of described it is I feel like with my bike racing, I've been, you know, on a ladder, like going up, up, up. And now I'm on like, you know, a plateau. And I think it's like maybe you have to like move the ladder over, you know, 10 feet and then go up from there and you can keep going up from there. Like um, that's not a great metaphor, but I think <laughs> I like it, though. Say is that sometimes you have to like go sideways. And I think right now I'm definitely at a point where like, my bike skills are good. My fitness on the bike is good. My fitness off the bike is really not that good. So that's kind of the focus for this year, just to get to like an, a better overall health um, perspective. I think 
you know, overtraining last year was kind of a wake up call for me because I always felt that it was like, I'm not doing enough and I need to do more because, you know, so-and-so has been racing for like 10 years and like, I need to catch up. And I think what I sort of realized is that like that attitude was like kind of holding me back. So I'm trying something different. (laughs) I really like that. And I think it's super smart because one of the things I didn't do was work on my hamstrings, which cyclists don't have anything of. And that still is plaguing me, you know, like 20, 25 years later, (laughs) you know, so congrats to you for thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, I think it is important. It's been a little hard to kind of be like, that might mean, you know, a bit of a downward slide in terms of results this year. I think, though, I'm okay with that. And I also think it might not be the case. I think there's a decent chance I'll actually do better if I'm less invested and less trained. But, you know, I don't know that until I get out there and try. But I think overall, I'm sort of looking at a long term perspective. Yeah, and I think it is it is valuable. Like, like we were talking about earlier with results, like I've made an effort to not make my results that important, because I, I think, you know, results are, as an athlete, like, unsustainable to a certain degree, like, but but story is not, you know, you can keep telling a story regardless you can't keep racing at the top of your game forever like most people you know even like you know the top enduro world series races they have like two good years you know and then like maybe a few bad years and maybe another good year and it's like if your entire income and your entire sense of worth is based on having a good year results wise you're just like shooting yourself in the foot before you even start right and certainly for long term that's the case yeah how do you manage the inevitability of getting hurt? Um, and I don't necessarily mean really, really hurt, but just, you know, the fear of falling or, you know, scraping your knee or, you know, like buggering up your hip bone or whatever. Yeah, it's an interesting um, debate. I think I, it, I have managed, as my skills improve, I crash less for sure. I think I crash worse when I do because I'm going faster. Um, I think I've, I've had periods every year, usually when I'm kind of getting into that burnout mode where I start becoming very afraid of everything. Um, and I think that's just sort of like a sign. I think, you know, if you're feeling afraid of things that you know you can do, it's like, okay, you need to step back and like take some time. I think the, you know, the hard thing about mountain biking and I think specifically, you know, downhill oriented racing is that there's always an element of of fate involved and you have to kind of accept that like you're going 35 miles per hour down a trail like shit can happen um however i think the important part is like being um i don't know how to put this exactly i think self-actualized like are you confident that you can do what you know how to do and that you know you have to just kind of let go of this extra of like yes terrible things could happen part um I think someone told me once that the opposite of fear is not necessarily bravery it's um, self-actualization so that's like you look at you know a drop or something and you know you can do it and therefore you do it and you don't worry about what would happen if you suddenly forgot how to do it I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it's sort of a weird side version of confidence because it's not really confidence so much. It's just sort of, yeah, I like your I like your explanation. Yeah, I think um, 
it's almost there's like a scale of self-actualization it's like would you trust yourself to like ride a motorcycle in traffic and like all these sort of or like go skydiving and like I think you know a mountain biking is on that scale somewhere like you have to just trust that you are going to do the thing to navigate a certain section and, and that's something I struggle with especially when I'm burned out is that I am afraid of being afraid like I'm afraid that because I'm afraid I will you know get up to the edge of this section and just like grab a handful of my front brake and crash but like realistically probably I'm not going to do that um hopefully (laughs) you know if you really think you are going to do that then like it's time to take a break you know but I think it, it comes to trusting yourself right yeah that's a nice way of putting it do you have coaches and other support people? I do. Yes, for sure. I couldn't survive without my coaches. I, um, I work with Carmichael Training Systems. Um, Mike Derner is a coach at Carmichael. He's been great. He coaches both Mackie and I, and um, that's super helpful because he's able to kind of coordinate what we're doing so that we're not like doing opposite things. We don't have the same training plan, but at least like if we're both doing a gym workout, we're both doing it on the same day. <laughs> And I work with Dane Delazier at Revo PT in Boulder. And um, he's started as my physical therapist now. He does all my like strength training specifics. And then Mike kind of helps get that all into, you know, a, a plan so that it all makes sense. And that's been really helpful because I had all these knee issues. So it really, my strength work is really kind of just like an extension of physical therapy. Um, and I also work with Lee McCormick at, Lee likes bikes for skills stuff. So yeah, I have quite the quite the support crew and it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you guys do since you're on the road so much about massage or things like that where you need somebody that you can trust? Yeah, we don't really do massage stuff. I, I spend a lot of time with my foam roller. Um, that's sort of that. We we spend a lot of we we go through Boulder a few times a year and see Dane and kind of get straightened out that way. Um yeah, I mean, I think probably more, I mean, more massage was great. That was like the best part of, we were in Thailand for three weeks and we got a massage every week for like $7 or something. Oh my gosh. That was great. It's kind of painful though. They're super intense, but. <laughs> Did you get Thai massage? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like the, the language barrier is kind of an issue because it's like hard to explain like, like, you know, anything. So you just kind of hope for the best, but it feels really good the next day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds good. So I have sort of a complicated question, so I'm going to do my best to ask it. But you encourage women to ride and to ride not only with other women, but with men, mm-hmm. um, often for practical reasons, because there aren't that many women who ride often in the same area. You've also written about not saying sorry for being the slowest in the group and also about comparing yourself to faster riders in sort of a, a difficult way. And all of this is really interesting to me on a personal level because I most often do adventures with my husband. And mm-hmm. right now he's faster than I am in most activities. And I really struggle with not getting frustrated right off the gate when he takes off. And so, <laughs> so often it will ru- ruin my whole day because, you know, he'll take off and I'll start getting irritated at myself for not being able to keep up. So I guess the question is, I don't know, what are you thinking about that and how all those three things relate? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's definitely, the dynamics are different when it's a relationship, right? Like, like I'm definitely going to get pissed at Mackie if he, like, ditches me when we ride. I mean, he's faster than me, but, like, 
it's still like it's different because he's my husband so we have to like figure out (laughs) you know I think um yeah I think that's the hardest part and I think for like the way Mackie and I have figured that out is we kind of go by our training plan we kind of let our coach tell us when we should be riding together and when we shouldn't and that's kind of helpful I think because then we're like okay today's a workout day like we're gonna do our separate things or like oh today's like a fun ride we're gonna just ride together and I think that's you know we're definitely privileged in being able to have someone else in there like (laughs) deciding that because I think that's that's hard in a relationship I think the thing that I've definitely realized and this is more group rides I would say than when I'm just with Mackie but um is that most people don't care that you're slower. Like most people really don't care at all. It's usually like what you care about. That's the problem. And like, you don't want to be the slowest and that's really hard. That's super hard for me. But most people like know, you know, they're, if they invite you on a ride, they like know where you're at based, you know, compared to them. And like, if they invite you, then they're accepting that and they're cool with it and they want to ride with you. I think, you know, that's also like helpful to be upfront with your expectations. Like if you want to ride with your husband and you want it to be like the kind of ride where you both go together, like that's probably something you should discuss beforehand as opposed to like, you know, realizing that that's what you wanted after he's already gone and then getting pissed about it, which I've totally done. So I get that. (laughs) But um, I really think that communication solves most problems with those sort of things. I think I think the thing that I find hard and and is to not, you know, like the post I wrote about not apologizing, like that's still super hard for me. I think you, you feel like you're a drain on someone else when you're slower than them, but like realistically, they probably don't see it that way. When I first started riding, I was, you know, I was just out of college, like Mackie had already been racing professionally. He raced pro cross country for like five years before he started doing enduro and you know, we would often be riding with like his friends and like, yeah, I was the slowest, but it was like pretty like, you know, good crew there. (laughs) Like, I just didn't have much perspective on like, you know, it just, it doesn't mean anything other than you're like the slowest person that showed up for the ride. Like that, that's all it means. It doesn't mean you're like the slowest person in the universe, which is sort of how I interpreted it. Like every time, like, oh my God, I'm so slow. I like can't keep up with like Heather Ermager and like, jhk when we were with them i was like duh you know you have only been riding for like a year like what do you expect right so expectations are part of it for sure yeah and i and that sort of relates to your story about riding in queenstown and finding yourself on this terrible trail and not realizing that it was one of the hardest trails ever (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was epic it was like the gnarliest thing i've ever seen in my life and it didn't once occur to me that i was on the wrong trail (laughs) Yeah, very interesting. I was so angry. Yeah, that was definitely like a wake up moment for sure. I was like, oh, this is happening in my head. You know, like this isn't, this doesn't have anything to do with everyone else. I will link to that article on the episode notes so people can, okay. people can read the story. It's very good. Yeah. So what have you done that you thought was particularly successful to encourage other women to ride? given all this previous discussion we've had. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's interesting you put that. I don't um, direct my blog towards women specifically because I think there's a lot of stuff that, like, I think men and women 
have a lot of the same issues, but often women are more honest with, um, like admitting that they apologize too much. Like I've totally been on rides with guys who are like apologizing all the time, you know? So it's not, it's definitely not only a female thing. Um, I do find, I think I've been able to be a resource for a lot of women who are interested in racing. I get a lot of emails and a lot of questions of people who are like, should I do this race? Like, should I do that? And I'm usually like, yeah, you should do it. You know, (laughs) and I think people sometimes just need someone maybe outside of like their family to be like, yeah, you should try it and you might fail, but like, who cares? You tried it, you know? And I think I'm able to to be that person for a lot of people. And that's been really fun. Yeah. What do you like to write about most? Um, that's a good question. I, um, I, I don't know, really. I kind of just write like what comes to me in the current moment. I think that in terms of what has been the most helpful for me to write, like it definitely is very cathartic sometimes when I'm having a really hard time. I don't think that's like the most fun thing to write about, but it is very helpful. And I think it has yielded some of the posts that have been the most helpful to other people too, just because I'm being honest. Um, but I'm not sure there's any one thing. I, I just like writing in general, you know, if anything, I'd like to, you know, expand my blog to writing about more things than just bikes. Cause it is a little limiting at the moment, but I still have fun with it. Well, I appreciate all your time that you've taken. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Um, no, I think this is you have had many very insightful questions. This has been great. Cool. Well, good luck for this upcoming season and for you. rehabilitating your knee. I yeah. think that's an awesome goal. And I look forward to hearing yeah. what happens. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been really fun. Sure. Talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your pals about it. No, really, I mean right now. Send an email to one friend just to say these women are awesome. And also remember to sign up for the newsletter and get the link to a Spotify playlist of favorite workout songs of some of my guests. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye-bye. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.